Hey, I'm Al Dominic, and welcome to Plugged In. I'm in our Scottsdale DJ booth with my good friend Steve Williams. You know, I was listening to some classic rock, and it inspired today's conversation. So I'm going to pull some tracks off the proverbial shelf to get our conversation with Tom Michaud, the CEO of Keith Brietton Woods, really cranked up for this special edition of Plugged In. That sounds great. I love classic rock, and we're lucky to have Tom on the show. Yeah, so Tom, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for doing this. Thanks great for doing to this. Be with you, know, you both. You know, I was walking over to our Scottsdale offices this morning, listening to U2's One from their Octoon Baby album. Yeah. Great album. And Tom, you know, that song starts with the lyrics, is it getting better or do you feel the same? And I thought those little words put together really allow you to talk about the current earnings season and some of the observations that you have. Sure thing. Well, again, thank you very much. It's great to be with you both. So, For earnings, we'll talk about the banking industry, earnings for the third quarter of 2022. We'll start with just the core regional banks. Uh, I think there are are four things that you need to know about the quarter, and then think about how it fits into the big story that's unfolding. The first is net interest income growth. Uh, Net interest income growth for a core commercial bank was up 20% year over year. We think we're in the second quarter of a four-quarter run of accelerated growth in net interest income. Uh, The second thing that's important to know is that credit quality is still pristine. And again, I'll say it again because I've been saying it many times, which is when credit costs go up, we should not be surprised they go up. We should be surprised they were so low for so long. And I know in our earnings models for the next couple of years, we've got provisions being bumped up every quarter, even though right now we're modeling a a soft landing scenario. The third thing that's important is we've had bond market moves like we've never seen in our careers before. And that has put a lot of pressure on tangible book value and tangible capital ratios. Uh, I'd say the typical regional banks had more than a 10% decline in their tangible book value this year. We've also seen the industry get more levered on tangible capital. It's actually back to the same ratio that we saw at the end of 2007. And the reason why that's happened is both for the numerator and the denominator. The industry has been swollen with excess deposits and tangible capital has been clipped because of the bond markets. Now, the good news is that we think over the next couple of years, that's all going to burn off as bonds get closer to maturity, as the industry remains profitable, and as deposits shrink. So it's going to self-correct, but hopefully there's no credit event in the meantime, because that's the bear narrative for this group, which is if you get a credit event while that's happening, it could lead to a capital raise cycle. So that's would be listed for those who are more cautious on bank stocks. That would be something they might say. And then uh, and then the fourth thing is deposits. Uh, We we have run a trend line for where we think FDIC insured deposits should be today. We think there's two point six trillion dollars of excess deposits in the banking system. Remember, JP Morgan said not too long ago, they think they're going to lose 400 billion of deposits over the next year. I think they said that maybe that was six months ago. As as deposits leave the system, that alone would be the 10th largest bank in the nation. So we've never had banks where they have to surf this moment. And not every bank is going to surf this moment successfully. 
So we've seen in the stock prices that a profile of a bank matters to the share performance. In particular, deposit betas are a big driver. Companies that have lots of non-interest bearing liabilities, companies that are well core funded are the ones who are doing better because the view is they're going to be able to, to navigate this moment more successfully. So I would say those are the four big takeaways. I, I, I know we often talk about the regional banks. I would like to spend a moment, though, talking about the big universal banks uh, because they ha are having the opposite happen because while they're getting the net interest income bump that regional banks are getting, uh, investment banking is essentially in a recession already. Mortgage banking is in a recession essentially already. So what you're seeing is a company like Bank America could have 20% net interest income growth, but only 4% revenue growth because of their business mix. Now, the reality is we've done studies, a study, where we've looked at how long the capital markets have been closed for equities over time. And, and 10 months is the longest period we found. We're about to enter the 11th month in November of that bear market for that business. It's going to turn one day. And, and, and when it does, we think it'll come back strong. So it's a matter of when, not if. But the big banks are, are navigating their way through that uh, moment. So, so, so my opinion, now you asked a question about where are we headed to. That's what happened in the third quarter. Um, my view is we'll still be talking about what we're just talked about in the third quarter. Maybe capital markets for banks, universal banks gets better. But I think we're going to be talking about credit more over the six to nine next six to nine months. And uh, I don't think it'll be as pristine. It'll still be excellent, but it, it's got to, it's got to move higher in terms yeah, of. Credit and, you know, we, we talk about like, when's the shoe going to drop? You know, you mentioned deposits. That was a dirty word to use, you know, a, a year ago. Now it seems to be right. in vogue, if you will, yeah. Steve back what, in value, right? <laughs> what, what are your thoughts as you listen to Tom talk? Well, it sounds sound like a, that margin expansion is is the good news. And what's interesting is it hasn't really been dialed into stock appreciation. Is that because of the potential on the credit side or, or the funding side? Or what's holding back some really nice appreciation given margins going crazy right now? It's a couple of things. It's first of all, investors aren't willing to give certainty to the earnings estimates out to 2023 and 2024 right? because they believe that there's risk on credit and there's risk on managing this deposit moment. That's what I'd and say. And yeah. I've had an, really smart investors tell me they'd rather pay 10% more for bank stocks with certainty than buy them today when they just don't know. Um, the other thing I will tell you though is, and I'm surprised the market, I mean, we've been talking about this, but I'm surprised the market hasn't talked more is we just came out with our 2024 estimates. We think earnings estimates are going to be flat in 20, there'll be no earnings per share growth. And I think the market is, is not going to love that when we get to that moment. That won't be for all banks, but really what it is, is this whole period with COVID and all and provisioning, it's a lot of pulling forward and pulling back different years' earnings into different year periods. Yeah. And and so we're we're probably over earning right now because of this margin, but at some point the margin's gonna flatten out. We'll probably have much slower loan growth because of a weak economy. We'll have a higher provision and we have inflation. And if you add, it doesn't take much to do all that to kind of eat up a lot of earnings per share growth. The industry will be more profitable. Just right. growth is going to slow a lot in 24, we think. Yeah, it makes all the sense. If you're stepping up provision, if the beta is starting to go up on funding and 
uh, you've got a little bit of that growth pressure. The math works, right? It, it, yeah, it and remember, whenever we and others talk about deposit betas, we typically talk about them over the cycle. So we're enjoying the low numbers of the cycle. Right. We get into the fourth quarter and first quarter, and then we're going to have the above cycle numbers. Okay. If we think it's 35 to 40 basis points for the cycle, that means we have a few quarters of 60, 65 basis points. Yeah. So, Tom, you talked about surfing the moment. I think you're doing a great job of helping to set the table for what people need to be talking about and preparing for. I want to ask Steve if he recognizes uh, some music that came out of the state right across the way from where you are. So if I was to be in New York, I'm looking down in New Jersey and there's some lyrics that go a little bit like this. Okay. Well, there's a dark cloud rising from the desert floor. I packed my bags and I'm heading straight into the storm. It's going to be a twister to blow everything down. That ain't got the faith to stand its ground. Yeah. That's Does that been, ring a bell? Yeah. It's a promised land, a great Springsteen song. Uh, I think we wanted to get into credit and Tom kind of hit on this, that there probably could be some, some credit challenges ahead. My question, Tom, is where do you see that? Is is there a sector? Is it the real estate side because people aren't coming to work? Is it consumer credit because that got overbid? Where do you see the first cracks in credit? Well, look, look, there are a couple of things we could do right now. We could, first of all, there's a lot of credit that trades in the market. So we can kind of just follow market spreads as to where we might go. Um, if it was my, my bet, it would be levered, and leverage lending mm-hmm. uh, would probably be one place. Uh, remember, we've also gone through a, a special moment where the shadow banking industry has undergone tremendous growth. Zero interest rates was the rocket fuel for shadow banks. Right. And so, you know, seeing how the credit quality plays out in that vertical. The second thing is, I think, subprime lending which again is not really a core bank product. Interestingly, banks do lend to subprime lenders, but they don't really make the subprime loans themselves. And so I, I keep watching consumer confidence, unemployment, because those could be early indicators for what may play out there. Yeah, so um, I mentioned that we took a few songs off the the playlist for today's Plugged In. And I also want to tie it into a movie that I think most of us have enjoyed this summer. So I got a need, a need for speed. You guys know that's a Top Gun reference. Talk to me, Goose. Well, look, <laughs> if if you want to talk about Top Gun and we're talking music, you know Kenny Loggins is uh, getting some good royalties off of the Danger Zone. And I thought, you know, if we're talking about franchise reboots like that movie, we should also be thinking about, you know, banks. Maybe we look at the community bank sector and think about how they're trying to really position themselves for their next great run. You, know, you talked about the regionals. You talked about the big banks. Could you give us a little take on those you know, proverbial troublemakers that are a little bit smaller in asset size but are doing some pretty cool stuff? Yeah. The, um, the, well, the, I'll tell you the interesting thing that we see happening, and, and it, I'm going to flip to fintech on the conversation here sure. because one thing is since so fintech really and digital engagement came on really strong during the covid period i have not seen any relenting on the part of banks interest in terms of staying on that on that path we haven't and either also there, yeah. there's there's been a there's a view that the the big banks were able to take a lot of share during big moments in the industry's history when there were bank failures during the global financial crisis the policy was to take big banks and sell them to even bigger banks. Um, 
And, and the big banks can afford a lot of investment in fintech. And there's also a view that the consumer banking business has, by and large, set itself up where you know who the long-term national leaders are going to be already. So that's late in the game. The smaller banks, their bread and butter business is commercial lending. And I'm seeing a lot of intensity around making sure that community banks don't get disintermediated by the bigger banks or by shadow banks in commercial lending. So there's a lot of investment activity happening with fintechs. And it's kind of like conducting an orchestra because when you conduct an orchestra, um, what you have to do is uh, you, you have to have all the pieces moving together. And with these smaller banks, they need to have their core processor on board. They need to have the ability to onboard other fintechs who can help them uh, pioneer in this area or build build a fintech digital engagement. And I'm seeing a lot of smaller banks take on that challenge and execute plans in that area. So I think that's actually very exciting. And we're seeing that as well with all the different fintechs that are there. You know, it, it kind of neatly ties into... Um, a song that I wish we had the marketing budget to actually stream as we're talking. <laughs> don't get, we don't have it. We don't have it in the budget, <laughs> but we can talk about men at work because if we're talking about something coming from the land down under, it was just August of last year that Square paid something like $29 billion for the buy now, pay later, you know, behemoth afterpay. In the period of time since, we've seen a tremendous cooling, you know, valuations of fintechs have gone anywhere from one third to a half, you know, of what they were. We've heard and we've talked a little bit about some of the cool stuff from last year really not having the same appeal at the moment. So that's crypto, that's uh, AI. AI, machine learning, you know, things that people were getting excited about are slowly fizzling uh, for some. But you and I, Tom, have talked over the years about fintech and your fascination with it. What kind of gets you excited and amped up on the fintech side of the world right now? Well, I think number one is what something we just talked about, which is having community banks uh, be able to get in the game and 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 hopefully have partners that can help them do that. But uh, we're we're watching. I think number one is payments is so important to the banking industry, and I think whoever emerges as the long term big player in payments could be the winner or, or a group of winners, and. We're doing a lot of work in the blockchain area um, where there have been some blockchain development to bring payments to the uh, to a closed loop for the banking system. Um, real-time payments is, is, is in a variety of places. You know, the Fed's working on the FedNow plan. You've got the Clearinghouse working on a plan. You have our effort along using blockchain um, inside, uh, inside the space. And, and, and um, so, that, so I think that's one area where there's a lot of energy and excitement. Because remember, the, the, a lot of the systems that the banks use today were built in the 70s. I, I know you've been quoting songs. You could probably find a few good songs from the 70s to quote. <laughs> but uh, I like the songs better, That some of the songs better that you mentioned. Maybe that was the 80s. But, um, but so I think payments. And then the other thing with, with fintech that I would bring up is the gap between innovation and regulation is the widest I've ever seen it in my career with regards to fintech. And I think the next Congress is going to do a lot of work on that. And you're going to start to see in motion a lot of regulation and legislation that goes down the path of, uh, of um, regulating 
many of the, whether it's cryptocurrencies, digital assets, crypto exchanges. So I think we're going to get more regulation. The good news for the banking industry is I think the banking industry still is going to be in the center of a lot of it. Uh, the regulators, I think, have been very disciplined of not giving charters out or access to the payment system easily. And I think bank regulation is going to be a very dominant part of the future. And I think that's really good for banks. Well, and it's, it's what's interesting is I've heard from CEOs of banks and CEOs of fintechs that the regulatory space, that's the big wild card that's throwing them for a loop as they are trying to plan for the next 18 months. Well, I'll tell you, if you, if you want to watch something fun, because, you know, if you like to watch, you know, competition, um, you know, we got the World Series coming up. Another competition to watch is, is cryptocurrency regulation, because the uh, CFTC thinks it's a commodity. The SEC thinks it's an exchange. And the Federal Reserve thinks it's currency and monetary policy. They all can't be right. <laughs> so Congress is going to have to choose how they're going to do it. And I think that's going to be the debate of the next Congress. Yeah, we think with that complexity to sort through and what's happened to valuations, you've got more humble fintechs, maybe not as uh, frothy with uh, valuation. It's, uh, we call it playing the long game, Tom. The, these ideas aren't going to go away. The, the use of blockchain is going to be there. It's just going to be more roll up your sleeves and get to work together. Yeah, and you see companies like Figure Technology that's doing some really cool stuff with blockchain technology to you know create smarter contracts to look at industries that are ripe for disruption, right. you know, the whole title space very manual process oriented. We heard uh, from the founder of QED that anything analog will be digitized. And so the big challenge is how do you create business cases and business opportunities around that very thought. Now, Tom's been very generous with his time. He probably has recognized a theme here at uh, Cornerstone. We love music and I wanna take us home with this quote. You know, you've got to find a way to bring some love in here today. That's so, the 70s. That is the 70s. And that's Marvin Gaye. So it's all around, <laughs> what's, going, it's all around what's going on. And, uh, you know, we think it would be appropriate to just quickly touch on what's going on with ESG. We've been trying to talk about depoliticizing ESG as a conversation, trying to take the temperature down a little bit. But I, I just would be curious, Tom, if you could weigh in on ESG activism versus shareholder activism and kind of the power structure that you're seeing right now. Sure. I, I think number one is the difference between ESG activists and traditional activists is being blurred. And the dividing line between the two is really, I think, uh, going away. Um, you know, what's really interesting is, I don't know if you saw it last year at Exxon, um, a hedge fund that owned 0.02% of the company led a campaign that replaced three of the 12 Exxon directors. Yeah, pretty mind-blowing. <laughs> the entire campaign was built around Exxon not keeping up with their peers in the area of ESG. That was, that was the epicenter. So we actually think that there's not going to be a big difference between the type of activism, and you're likely to see that many activist campaigns will include ESG. And we meet a lot with our clients and talk a lot about what to do with ESG, about ESG and, and where it's headed. Um, but the way we think about it is that there are offensive and defensive reasons to be aware of what's happening in this market. Um, there are going to be business opportunities around ESG. And then, like I just mentioned, there are risks around how your shareholders think about ESG, especially if they're not aligned with your views. So the advice we give to our clients is to make sure that they're engaged, 
especially with their biggest shareholders, about how ESG has been incorporated into the work that they do. And then they will be able, the companies will be able to gauge how active they should be in that space and how important it, or how it could be woven into their business plans. And, and that's generally how, how I think about it and how our firm thinks about it. Yeah, no, we appreciate we appreciate that. Now, I am going to just ask a little bonus question because it would be unfair for me not to ask the CEO of one of the best investment banks in terms of doing bank deals over the years to weigh in really quick on the M&A space as you see it now really heading into the first quarter of, of 2023. Yes. I, I Well, the first thing is bank M&A has been very robust since the 1980s, since the laws were changed. And we do get moments where it slows. And right now we're in one of those pause moments. And I think it's for, I'd say, two primary reasons, one minor reason. The primary reasons it, reason is, or reasons are, when things are disorderly in the economy and in the markets, bank M&A tends to slow, unless it's rescue M&A. But it tends to slow. That's natural. If you think about it, selling your company is one of the most important things you could ever do. And you're not going to do it when th- when your stocks are, are flying all over the place or where you really don't know where the economy's headed. And you need to feel comfortable with both both companies to do a deal like that. The other thing is, you know, we have had a change in mentality in Washington. Uh, the length of time for many of these bigger deals to approve mergers is doubled, essentially. Uh, it seems like we're getting more clarity, which is good. I think that's going to have the impact of really slowing things down at the largest bank level. But I think that you will see mid-sized regional banks continue to merge. And and another item I would say is until you get to a trillion dollars, the bigger you are, the higher the the higher the valuation on a price to tangible book for your for your stock price. And so that is a really big driver, I believe, for uh, you know economies of scale is working. Investors are rewarding it, and. Um, so uh, so it's going to come back. And then I'll leave you lastly, which is I'm really focused on the class of 2021. These are a bunch of MOEs that came together, a lot of excellent management teams combining forces. I'm really eager to see how these companies uh, perform relative to peers over the coming years. And I think it'll be uh, an interesting lesson for the industry. Well, maybe what we'll do is we'll bring you back in uh, in nine months. We can take a look back and we can look at that class and see how they're doing. But look, Tom, we really appreciate you taking a little bit of your time to get plugged in with us here at Cornerstone. I think I might toss up on Spotify a shadow playlist. You talk about shadow banking. I'm going to do a shadow playlist for this plugged in episode. We'll have those five tracks that we covered with Tom ready to roll. Steve Williams, Al Dominic, we're just sending our thanks to Tom Michaud and the team at KBW. Thank you. Thank you, guys. 